A warm welcome to the Creative Places and Faces podcast, the podcast that explores places that help to inspire creativity. Some are local, some even formative, and others are far away and sometimes rather exotic. I'm Mike Payne, one of the Creative Places and Faces team. Let me introduce you to your host, Jackie DeBurka. Jackie is originally from Dublin, Ireland, but has spent a lot of time abroad, especially in Spain. She is the author of Salvador Dali at Home, creator of Travel Inspires, and the number one travel and tourism influencer, Q2 2020, according to Global Data. Over to you, Jackie. And especially warm welcome to Henry McDonald, who's joined us here today. Actually, it was Henry who uh, really triggered this whole series of creative places and faces. Henry is the author of two novels, Two Souls and The Swinging Detective, eight nonfiction books, and he's a senior reporter for The Guardian newspaper. Henry, uh, welcome and thanks so much for being here today. Pleasure. Great stuff. Now, we're going to start to talk about your childhood in Belfast. What kind of memories do you have of your childhood in Belfast, Henry? Uh, mixed, mixed memories like everyone, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I was only five when the trouble started. So you know, I do remember prior to it, I do remember uh, the, the kind of build up to the troubles. Uh, I remember being walked in a pram by my mother at a civil rights march or something. I didn't know what it was then. Uh, she told me many years later um, that that's what it was. It was a march through the city centre of Belfast. And I lived mm-hmm. in the city centre, right in the heart of the city, uh, a place called the Markets area, uh, old industrial area. Uh, it still had horse stables. Uh, it, it had light industrial factories, it had the gas works. It had, uh, in one little corner of Riley's Place where I was born, it had cobblestones in the street still and gas lamps. I, swear, I kid you not. <laughs> it was, it really, we, I was actually literally born by the old gas yard wall. I mean, that, uh, my granny's house uh, faced on to, to the, to the Belfast gas works and uh, there was always a smell of sulfur in the air. Um, and, uh, that's what I remember. And then, of course, everything exploded in 69, 70. And so we, I basically had a ringside seat as a kid to, mm-hmm. uh, all the kind of violent activity that was going on uh, from internment, Bloody Friday, uh, and onwards and onwards, uh, it, it went, you know, and mm-hmm. inexorably sort of ground to a halt eventually. Okay. So just for the, for the audience, Henry, you were born in, in yeah. 1965, wasn't it? 1965. Yeah. Born in mm-hmm. 1965. Um, okay. and, uh, I, you know, the, 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 my, my father, Tommy and mother, Flory, and I have one sister, Kathy. My parents are deceased now. You know, mm-hmm. They died had nine years ago. I saw, I saw that obviously the, the tweet last, last week, wasn't it? Your mum's mm-hmm. anniversary. Yeah. It was her anniversary last week, the ninth anniversary. She only died four months after my dad passed away. And, wow. uh, you know, it's one of those, those things that happen, you know, a couple that were together for so long and one, when one goes, the other one sometimes doesn't last. You, you often wonder, does the, yeah. the body and the soul give up? I, I don't know. It's, um, uh, there's something in that. Is, definitely. There's something. It is in amazing. That. I have. I have a Dutch friend here. Her parents died within oh. 24 hours of each other. My goodness. And that's, yeah. that's uncanny. It is. Uncanny it is. So, 
It is indeed. It is Henry. So going back to your childhood, uh, I know you and, and your family obviously located where you were during that time. You had some close escapes. Can you tell tell us about those? Sure. Well, we lived beside a bar. Now that that had pluses and minuses to it. The pluses are it was always a lively pub pub called Mooney's Bar on Eliza Street, Crummick Street, but. Uh, by the kind of early to mid seventies, bars were becoming targets for bombers and and assassination squads. It was a Catholic bar, a Catholic owned bar. So when there was a bomb somewhere else in Belfast by Republicans, there'd be retaliatory strikes somewhere. And Mooney's got it a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nice thing about living outside the bar, there was a huge big brown gate into the brewery, into where all the kegs were, the keg room rather, and. It was an ideal location for drawing a, a football net with chalk, you know? So me and my mates okay. used to chalk, chalk the, the big brown gate and we would play football and there would only be one goal and that would be it. And we'd shoot into that or have penalty shootouts. And I vividly recall about 1974, it was just after the uh, the World Cup in West Germany. Uh, we were, me and a friend of mine called Billy, we're, we're playing penalty shootouts, you know, trying to be back in bar and Johan Cruyff, you know, the heroes of <laughs> 1970s uh, European football. And mm-hmm. I noticed a, a, a white Cortina car cruising down Crummick Street, so me and Thurifer into the city centre from South Belfast. And then it came back up again and it was slowing down. And, and we had already been sort of drummed into this by our parents to be careful, to watch out for passing cars or cars mm-hmm. left abandoned near the pub. And this car, the window wound down on this car. And I saw this thing, a spout. It looked like a kind of a a black piece of metal. Later told it was a submachine gun. And the guy started right. firing. Uh, firing at people going into the bar, right? Because it, okay. it was a Friday early evening in late summer, right? So people are going for a pint after work or whatever, right? You're, you know. And uh, we, Billy and I just dived on, onto our bellies, lay flat, and I remember the whistle of the, the bullets going across like a doof, 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 like that, you know? Mm. It was more of a, of a dull, dull sort of repetitive noise. And then the car just sped off. And I remember hearing one guy screaming. He'd been hit in the leg. Mercifully, no one was killed. But that's how close we came. If we'd have stood up, perhaps we'd have taken, we could have taken one of the bullets. Uh, wow. same, same exact location, maybe about a year later. Um, yeah, it would have been the summer, the pre, the, the following summer. Um, I, Elijah Street was a big, long, long street, and the bottom of it was a bakery, uh, mm-hmm. with lorries and stuff, you know, taking bread, English's bakery, taking bread all over Northern Ireland. Mum was down at the bakery shop, buying something. It was kind of uh, early evening. And I, I, I vividly recall sitting on the seat with my dad at the window, and it's a knockout, that kind of, Wacky, mm-hmm. weird game. We I remember that. It yeah. <laughs> was on the TV, Freddy, Freddy Night Fair. And I, I looked at the corner of my eye and I saw this blue, kind of blue-coloured cortina parked outside, just outside our door, but close to the bar. And the next thing, I turned around to watch whatever wacky goings on were going on by the Belgians playing their joker or something. And boom, there was this almighty bang and then this huge kind of like invisible force throwing us down. I, I, I fell across my father and on top of me there was a, a 
plate of glass. The glasses can came out. Like, wow. There was a large shards of glass on top of us. We were cutting stuff, but and the the thing was on fire. And we like, he then grabbed me and brought me into the back of the house and tried to get me over a wall through the yard to neighbours. And uh, then the police and the army came, and uh, they later told us that the um, the bomb had been positioned wrongly, whatever way it was placed, and the blast went. I think. Vertical instead of horizontal. If it went horizontal, it would have had more force. Could have killed us. That's what they told us at the time. I don't, you know, I knew nothing about ordnance or anything like that. Mm. I was ten years. Of age. I was ten years of age, you know. And wow. um, yeah. And mom was down with my sister at the bottom of the street, and she could see the, the, the. She saw the bomb go off. She was safely away from it, but because of the street is just one long, big, big long uh, thoroughfare, she could look up and see the damn thing go off. So. Uh, she, she, uh, she witnessed it from the other side of the street, and uh, she must have thought we were dead, you know. So, and surprise, surprise, later on that year, uh, there was an awful lot of terrible things happened that year, seventy five. Um, in the winter of seventy five, she had a heart, she had her first heart attack, and I often think, you know, incidents like that would have would have played their part, built you know, up stress, yeah. stress of it, you know. So that, that there are two, there's just two examples. I can think of many, many more through the years, you know. I, to, I mean, I've had a school, I've had a boyhood friend blew himself, blew himself up around our back back entry um, uh, in early 1980s. Uh, I, I, I witnessed people being shot down, you know, being, who had been shot and uh, or beaten, and uh, you know, it, it, it's and yet and yet, parts of the childhood were also bucolic, right? Mm-hmm. There were happy mm-hmm. times too. There were times when you had, you know. Good memories. The area was a uh, very vibrant. Um, now it was a very it was deindustrializing and being reconstructed by the Northern Ireland Housing Executive, a public housing authority, which did an amazing job giving people decent houses. But mm-hmm. the there was lots. Of, I mean, you know, uh, because there was a bakery, it was operating twenty four seven. So at the back of the bakery, where all the lorries came out. There was um, it, it was permanently lit up. So at night. We could play. We could play football in the in at night time. We had our own fl- free mm-hmm. floodlights. <laughs> so I remember the World Cup. In 70, I remember the World Cup in seventy eight, playing, reenacting all those games over in Argentina at like midnight. We go out at midnight because the matches were beamed in about you know nine o'clock, ten o'clock, whatever, uh, from from Argentina because of the time difference. And then mm-hmm. we, were, we, we, we we because it was the summer, we went didn't go to school, so we were out playing, booting the ball up and down. A pack of English's bakery because because there was there was illumination, so yeah. that kind of and then there were there were things like you know I lived across across the road from where I lived there was a stable there was a family that owned horses we mm. used to go over and feed the horses and uh, ride on the horses even and take them for take them for walks and things like that there so it was a kind of a mixture of this kind of menace military militarism paramilitarism danger and yet. You could still get all my. You could still. There were still. I've still got good memories as well. You know. So. You know. So you must have had a lot of camaraderie lot of with the 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 the, the guys that you were playing football with. You yeah. know, and and yeah. To, to an extent, there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, there's people that I know today that I knew when I was four who are still mm-hmm. lifelong friends who. Whose legs were forged in that un- very unusual 
life during wartime experience that we had. And, uh, you know, when we grew up together and evolved and, uh, and those, those guys have, uh, have, have, have stuck by me ever since. And I've, I've done the same for them. So, and I think that is partly due to, you know, what happens in times of adversity. It can actually bring people together and, uh, you know, and, and you often look back now when you sort of meet up. We don't meet up as often as we used to. Our, our lives are all atomized and we discuss things that happened. And the, the common kind of reaction around the table is, uh, did that really happen? You know, I mean, I was, I was, when I was in Mercia recently in Spain where my, with my cousin who's from Belfast, we grew up in this very same area and has lived in Madrid uh-huh. for, for, for four decades or more. Um, uh, he started remembering when I started to talk on the beach in uh, in the Mar Menor about certain things. He this triggered memories in him, and he a flood of these stories came out. He, he I mean, he remembered the night someone threw a bomb uh, into his favorite pub, the Grand, as it was called, and uh, a, 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 a pensioner lifted it up. It hadn't exploded. Lifted it up and threw it outside. <laughs> <laughs> and then it exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he suddenly remembered that 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 incident at Friday night when he was a teenager. He was coming down from Queen's University, Belfast, for a post college pint on a Friday night, and somebody threw a bomb into the front of the, a pipe bomb into the into the bar. And this old guy who had been in the army in the Second World War lifted it and walked outside coolly and threw it in the middle of the street, and it exploded. And we were we were actually sitting laughing about that, you know, in a beach in Spain. 40, 50 years later, you know, kind of, kind of 40 odd years later, you know, it's kind of bizarre. He's, he's not the cousin <sighs> at all, Henry, that has uh, in any way uh, played a role in, in your book, Two Souls. Did he? No, he no, no, that's, that's, that's another side of the family. That's another side of the family. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. Well, was there a deep purpose? It's an absolutely amazing, a very gritty book, which draws hugely on, on, you know, your your time growing up in Belfast. Mm-hmm. Was there a deep purpose uh, for you to have what I, I perceive as courage to write a book such as Two Souls? And, and if there was a purpose, Henry, what was it? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't call it, use the word purpose. I would use the word, um, of, I suppose Martin Amos puts it best and he says, it's a throb. It's, a, it's an idea that just gnaws away. Uh-huh, and throbbed uh-huh. in, in your brain until, and I just felt that period of 70 at 79 was a pivotal time in my life and in, not only in the life of Northern Ireland, Belfast, but also the world. You know, things were changing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, Margaret Thatcher coming to power, the, the Islamic Revolution in Iran, you know, the invasion later on, the invasion of Afghanistan, you know, and the things were changing here too, right? Um, not not necessarily for the, for good, and the, and punk rock was dying, and uh, mm-hmm. a kind of spirit of unity that punk created in Northern Ireland was was under threat from traditional ancestral forces, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I tried I, I, that period fascinated me always. It was it was the, it throbbed away in my in my consciousness, and so I knew I had to write about that period. I knew I had to do something, and. Uh, Yes, I mean it's a book I had to write. In many ways, I, I, the book is, I believe, also a ghost story, but kind of a, a subtle 
ghost story. It's, I mean, it, the characters who are based on are all ghosts. I mean, Sabine is a, was a real person who I once loved. She's a ghost. She's died recently. Oh, really? Uh, 80, 80, yeah, yeah, yeah. 80 dead a very long time. And even Padre Pio was based on a character who was, who was murdered himself uh, in the in the early 2000s. So it the, the ghosts were around this book as well. And I, I just wanted to do something about that as well. I think mm-hmm. that was, you know, they were calling back to me, if you like, you know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about the the character that uh, Sabine was based on? Well, I don't want to say too much because I want to protect her family. But she was okay. a girlfriend. She's a girlfriend of mine. Well, I was kind of she wasn't really much of a girlfriend of mine. I just was mad about her. But she she then she went off uh, with someone else, and uh, I didn't. I never got bitter. We always remained friendly on friendly terms, and we reconnected. Not so long ago, um, she had built a life for herself in England, and but then she told me she was terminally ill. And uh, oh. but uh, it, it was my first love, I suppose, of of the teenage years, and that always has a a profound effect on you. I think it always it can it can mark you. And what I but I wanted the the fictional side of Sabine is I wanted the, her rejection of Robbie Ruin, who's partly mm-hmm. based on me, not totally. To become mm-hmm. more toxic, okay. I yeah. uh, and and I I accepted what being rejected and moved on with someone else. But in the book, I wanted that toxicity to propel him into male violence. Sure, you know the the, the, the hangout with the bad crowd again. Um, you know, and firstly with the, the, the soccer hooliganism, and then in the in the paramilitarism. And ultimately mm-hmm. into this existential revenge that he exacts. I don't want to give too much away about the book. But I was mm-hmm. interested in that way, in the way that male violence and tribalism can be an escape for people or it can be a kind of like a, almost like a, almost like an opiate, like a kind of a opiate, right? Mm-hmm. And it's an op- yep. it's an opiate for for Robbie. He 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 loses himself in the crowd. I mean, those sections when he's marching down to the Irish Cup final and he's swallowed up by the crowd, the the the, the menacing organ organism. I think I call it. Mm-hmm. And that's what it did feel like. It you were part of this throbbing, moving mass. You were immersing your individual feelings and thoughts into this focus into the spearhead, you know, driven by tribal loyalty. And uh, and he he, found, he he finds comfort in that, right? But he doesn't find salvation in it because it ultimately mars his life. And, and we see that at the end of the book with the, with, there. I think there is some sort of an epiphany in the last chap, two chapters, you know, when, we, when Sabine confronts him through her art, over what he's done. Yeah. I mean, Sabine, yeah. Sabine is the strongest character, I think, in that book. I mean, in terms of survivor. I mean, she, she ends up in West Berlin, um, as a photographer. And I've, people have actually said to me, do you think you should do a second, a, a novel based on her, what, what happened to her? And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> but, um, but she is someone, 
And the real life character was like her in terms of her determination and her spirit mm-hmm. and her intelligence. And I, I thought it was vital in a book that focuses a lot on male violence. There would be one strong, independent female character who in many ways supplants them all in the end. Don't she forget does. also. Mm. Don't forget in the end of the also in that period of seventy eight seventy nine, feminism is starting to really assert itself, and young women are starting to, you know, fight for their autonomy in every way. And she mm-hmm. she's part of that for, that 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 wave. Could you could call it maybe the second wave of feminism after the sixty eight sixty eight generation? And she's mm-hmm. part of it and determined to, to, to determine her own destiny, not let a man do it. And and I hope that comes across as well. In, in the book. Definitely. Yeah, no, it definitely Because well, I think feminism has been one of the more, out of all the isms and ideologies, I mean, well, fascism, just evil, uh, uh, communism has failed. Um, you know, the Marxist dream has died. And, uh, but the, the, the one product of the new left in the Western world after, in, in, in the 68th generation is feminism, which has endured and has probably been the most benign. And, mm. you know, no one dies, you know, <laughs> I mean, women <laughs> equality, like, you know, this is, you know, so out of what it is, one of the most profound isms in human history. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I was, I was mindful of that when I was writing this book as well. You sound like, you sound like you're really considering, uh, a sequel to Sabine from what you've just said. Ah, it's possible. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, Robert's still alive in 1994 when the IRA ceasefire happens, right? Um, and there's a lot of ground covered ever since. So maybe there is a. I'll speak to my publisher if I could get my, <laughs> all those le- if I could get all those legions of Two Souls fans to to to, to get a social media <laughs> campaign going, you know, bring back Sabine and Robbie, you know, why not? <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Mm -hmm. The central theme of betrayal is obviously uh, Mm -hmm. very important in the book. Do you you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think he she betrays him in a way. She doesn't betray him. She says, look, it's over. That summer of love, you know, played out to the soundtrack of David Bowie's Low. Mm -hmm. That's over. I'm moving on. I'm going to... She initially goes to London to do photography and art, but ends up in Berlin. Uh, he feels betrayed, but then he betrays her later on in a pretty dastardly deed uh, mm-hmm. uh, against one of her relatives. Okay, and uh, and that echoes down through the years, you know. And uh, she she captures that in her in, in the artwork at the end. Uh, I hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is that, and also. There's a sense of a trail among the, the the three friends, the four friends who who hook up on Irish Cup final day because they end up on different sides of intra Republican faction fighting. So they they all feel betrayed by each other. You know, Robbie Robbie is denounced as a sewer rat in an oration for another character mm-hmm. at, the, at a graveside in Belfast. You know, so there is that sense of uh, and. Sometimes I think the, the betrayals, while some of them are very real, some of them are also manufactured and fake and bogus. And mm-hmm. the sense of, sometimes the sense of betrayal is just far too hyperbolic, exaggerated for effect. Sure. 
you know, and I think that's something a legacy, a cultural, deep cultural legacy we in this society have to deal with, you know, I think have to, you know, that sense of treachery and sell it, you know, it's kind of, well, you know, everything's a sell it and life's a compromise, you know, but yeah. then it's dressed up as a, as an act of a stab in the back, you know, and I think that can be very dangerous. Definitely. Definitely. And the, the other betrayal that at least that I perceived as sort of a, a kind of a betrayal, Henry, was uh, between the characters, father, Robbie's father and himself. Yeah. yeah. Well, the father is betrayed by reality. I mean, socialism's collapsing all around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, by the time of his death, it's it's over. I mean, he's four, it's five years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know. Um, yeah. But it, 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 the father's disappointed that the son's not interested. You know, he... he He's not interested in conventional left-wing politics, and he's got more into this kind of violent subculture. And yeah, there's that sense of disappointment and betrayal as well, definitely. And uh, no, uh, you know, and the father is a good man, as as is his friend Marty. They're they're good men. They mean well, but they're kind of let down, not only by Robbie's generation, but also by reality itself around them. You know the. Mm-hmm. The city on the hill in Moscow is 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 is, is, is crumbled, you know, and uh, so there's that kind of sense of an ideal, and I, I tried to catch that again in the last two chapters. You know. I mean, the, you know, just the whole through the art installation uh, mm. that Sabine has built, uh, but it kind of, you know, yeah, there is that too. The father, but the father is right about a few things, and he's right about. Robbie should have got out. He should have left Northern Ireland altogether. And that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a story that's very personal to me because I, I did leave Northern Ireland and I came back. And I, I just often wonder what life would have been like if I'd have never came back when I, when I went when I was 19. But I did come right. back to work here and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and all the things that happened since. But they've happened and that's it. You have to deal with them. And, uh, of course. Of course. You know, your, your, your dad's your dad's character in the book, meaning Ronnie's Ronnie's father in the book, was as you mentioned, saying to Ronnie, "Yeah, get out of Belfast as soon as it's possible." Mm, mm, yeah, when yeah. was the first time you Henry left, and where exactly did you go? Are we talking about me going on holiday as a kid, but or leaving? I think whatever you feel had had a sufficient effect on you, it could be the first. Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, to see life elsewhere, yeah. in terms of seeing life elsewhere, uh, there are two places. I mean, your, your, your angle here is, of course, sense of place and its impact. Mm-hmm. And the two places, I suppose, were firstly Berlin. And, and no, no, firstly, sorry, let me get the, get the historical uh, timeline right. No, Brighton. In England, yeah. was the first place because I went there in 1977, and that was the year of the Silver Jubilee. God save the Queen. The Sex Pistols was number one, and uh, and well, I, the punks were all over the place in Brighton, and I went. I want to be part of this. I want to be. This is for me. This is different. This okay. is wholly different from the mono, monochrome life back at home. Yeah, life is elsewhere, and it's here. And so that that changed my life, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stay there, but I mean, I was there for, for a long period in this, at that summer in 77. Um, and then a couple of years later, Berlin, living in Berlin. 
in East Berlin first, then West Berlin later on. Mm-hmm. Both halves of the Cold War divide lived in both sides of the city. And uh, that had a profound impact. And, you know, my first novel, Swinging Detective, is set in Berlin. I'm trying to, try, I've been trying desperately to create my character, um, Martin Peters. I'm trying to get him, turn him into a kind of a, what's what's the word, a brand, if you like. And okay. Do yeah, a yeah, more yeah. of those kind of thriller, thriller things in Berlin. But, I mean, it's a city about Berlin as much as a city about Martin Peters, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, a novel about the city, a novel about the city. And, uh, but yeah, it had a profound effect as well. And, uh, so, but in terms of, and I actually did think in 1985 when I was there living in the summer in West Berlin, could I stay here? Should I just throw everything in university wise and, and live, live there? I didn't, but there we go. Uh, but I kept returning to the place over and over again, as I did with Brighton. It's very odd. Places that call <laughs> you back in life. Yeah. You know, I, went, I, was in Bright- I was in Brighton again in 1983 after being mm-hmm. in Berlin in 81. It was after uh, pretty tragic circumstances. I don't want to go into them, but. Uh, okay. And, and then uh, back again. And now I, I, that's where I've been living for the last year and a half. Yeah. I, I sought Brighton as a shelter from. Work, working in London and it, and it was a brilliant foil. I mean, the, just the commute's a bit of a pain, but the, it called me back and Berlin calls me back all the time. I mean, I was there in 2006. I was mm-hmm. there four years later. I'll be going back again, hopefully when the world reopens again. Yeah. Of um, course. so, you know, it's been part of my life for so long. So how, Henry, does Berlin, of course, both East and West, going back to the 80s, mm-hmm. how would mm-hmm. you define how it impacted you? Is, there, is it possible to sort of synopsize that? Well, yeah, I mean, it. it how to synopsize it? That's a good question. I think certainly in 85, when I went back through East Germany to, to West Berlin, it kind of, it kind of jolted me out of my slumber. Mm-hmm. I was a wee bit too starry-eyed about the socialist countries. And it was just going through Potsdam on the slow train and looking out to these guys playing volleyball who looked at me and it was a summer and and I had my I had my interrailer backpack on and I was making plans, looking at looking at a map of Europe and thinking, well well I'll go to Italy after this, you know. I'll go, maybe go to the Greek islands. Looking mm-hmm. at these poor devils and, and saying, well, they can't do that. They're not allowed. Yeah. They can't. They're, they're, they're pending. And that really was a profound moment, uh, an epiphany in many ways. But I also liked its kind of fantasy actually edge. You know, it was, a, the, it, it was something dangerous about the place. Mm-hmm. And yet also very friendly. It's, um and there was a seediness to it, which I liked. <laughs> reminded, and it, parts of it reminded me of Belfast because a lot of the, a lot of the, the the places near the wall were they were either you know sectioned off or else were in very run down districts with you know holes, holes mm-hmm. in houses, uh, you know disused factories. This is even in, the, in richer Westport, and, and there was a shabbiness to it. It was chic. And parts of it reminded me of downtown Belfast, you know, uh, even my own area, you know, it did. It kind of, that, that was kind of slightly dark side to it, 
which I, which I like, which appealed to me. And of course, there was always the music, you know, mm-hmm. from Bowie onwards, and you know, the German music scene as well, and uh, uh, and there are the likes of Nick Cave moving there and the Bad Seeds. Uh, so it it always had that attraction to to me, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's marked some, some of the books. I mean, he goes to Berlin in the book. I mean. They, they they have their love affair to the soundtrack of of Boys Berlin, the first mm-hmm. album, low, you know. Yeah. So it, it's it's there. It's flecked through a lot of my work. You know? I know. And David Keane and uh, Henry and the Guardian, he also makes the connection between Belfast and Cold War era Berlin. Can yeah, you... well, the, the walls, obviously the wall, right? Mm-hmm. We have our walls. We still have our walls. We've one that resembles the old Berlin Wall in the western sector uh, up at Cooper Street there. But, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I always point out that one of the, the – the, if you want to look for a monument of failure, you've got loads of them here in Belfast. <laughs> you've got walls that defy communities. I mean, some of them are incredible. You know, they're they're just – they're, they're, they're like medieval battlements and, uh, yeah. some of them. And uh, yes, I mean, I, I got, I mean, I got, I got the wall because I came from a city of walls and barriers, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was that c- connection for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Now, going back to two souls, Henry, uh, mm-hmm. if, if that were, because I, I personally think it would make, it would make a really good film. If it was to be filmed, Thank you. how, how do you how do you imagine Berlin in it? I know it's more of a reference in the book, but talk us through how you would visualize that. I, I yeah, that's good. Good. I mean, it's good thinking. I mean, how would I visualize the film? I mean, if the Berlin bit, I think it would be fleeting. It would be, I think it would, it would be something. The image, the the images or sequences would be parallel with the tracks from Low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you can just imagine, and it would be in, in Robbie's imagination, you know, imagining, yeah. you know, just like almost like a, the camera is his eye going through the streets, you know, and then cuts back to him lying in bed listening to dear one lying beside him, um, something like that. I think Belfast, he could re- re- easily recreate that around the city because uh, <laughs> there's plenty of walls and CD parts of it, but. Uh, although Belfast has been transformed with gleaming skyscrapers and shopping malls, and you know, it's it's a different looking city than it was. It doesn't have a ring of security steel around it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are one, there are one or two places you would film. There's one bar in particular in Belfast that I think it should, it could that would suit it uh, because it it retained a security grill. It has a, a kind of a metal entrance that you go through. It's like a kind of a like a tunnel that's in met, you know, it's kind of, kind of metal. You go uh-huh. through it into the bar because it because it had been it had been the scene of a massacre in the nineteen eighties, and the the guy when he the new owner who bought it decided he wanted to keep the metal protective barrier outside as a kind of a as a kind of an historical symbol. Okay, so uh-huh. it, it remains even though there's no troubles anymore. There's nobody shooting up bars the way they used to be, uh, but it, it but that that particular. Uh, adjunct to the pub outside the security grill would be it's very seventies, very eighties. You know? <laughs> so yes, yeah, uh, for people who haven't, uh, it's, been, called, go on. It's, it's called the sun, the sunflower. The sunflower. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
So that's that's. Uh... There's also a very excellent. I mean, I will. I, I want to shout out. There's a very excellent rock and roll museum in Belfast called the mm-hmm. Oh Yeah Center. It's also an organ. Oh yeah, it's called as an Oh Yeah, you know. Okay. Rock and roll man, and it, it it has a bar. It has a a museum with lots of things in it. You know, Van Morrison's guitar. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Leather bag jackets from the Outcast or something, you know, and and it you, you can watch films about the era, the punk era. In there, um, it has a performance and it has recording studio, so young bands can go in and play. So that would be somewhere that would be ideal to play, and, and it'd be great because it, it deserves it's, it's it. It should be a must see visit. Right. It, it's in the it's in the area where Good Vibrations Records recorded a lot of their music. Okay. In the seventies, nearly okay. the seventies, so it's in that historic center, the Cathedral Quarter, where. A handful of recording studios, you know, get gave the kids the chance mm-hmm. to print their own rec- record and, and and print their own records. Yeah, no, it should be a must see because in a, in a way it's it's very uh, important to to remember that aspect of Belfast as well. Mm. You know, well, um, exactly. Well, it, it, I mean, a friend of mine called Arthur McGee does a does a walking tour of Belfast. But uh-huh. his is alternative Belfast, and he actually once described it as from Presbyterians to punks. Okay. And what he meant by that was that there was a there was a great radical Presbyterian tradition in Belfast, and even before the United Irish Rebellion of seventeen ninety eight, there was a big anti slavery movement, and Belfast was the first city of the empire to um, oppose slavery, oppose okay. ships coming on the shore, which which came from the colonies and. You know, because a, a, a local minister denounced it as being made in blood, the blood mm-hmm, of slaves. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and that radical tradition goes right, snakes right through into the 20th century. And with the, the punk scene, which was militantly secular, anti-sectarian, and, you know, open to everyone. So the, his tour courses through that history. Uh, and, he, and he basically says, look, you can go up and do the trouble. You can go up and watch those IRA and... UDA murals, and mm-hmm. the walls of Belfast, and all the places where there was bombs and shootings. But there is another side of the R city, and this is, and I'm going to tell you about it. Well, I kind of, I like that, you know, and I, I feel that the punk era was part of that broad, okay. very fluid, yeah, lineage. So tell, tell me again the name of your friend. How, how would any listeners locate Arthur McGee? Okay, Arthur McGee. He's on, he's on Facebook. Arthur McGee Belfast. Okay. Okay, so he's, he'll not be doing it for a while because of you know COVID. The obvious that, reasons, but, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. But it's a great it's, for a tourist. It's a great walking tour. He's mm-hmm. and he's very entertaining. Mm-hmm. He often ends his tour with a little sh- uh, show. He's he's a musician as well, so he'll play the guitar and he, he sings. He writes his own songs, principally about his, his native city. So okay, but that yeah. sounds I mean sounds really authentic about. Uh, part of Belfast that's you know equally if not more important than what's the hidden Belfast. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes, yes, absolutely. Luckily, this is not a party political broadcast. It is a short announcement to mention our sponsor. This episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast is sponsored by Property Insurance Center. Property Insurance Center's sponsorship helps to support the local economy by promoting not only local writers, artists, and craftspeople but also entities involved in travel, tourism, and hospitality. This first series of the Creative Places and Faces podcast has an exciting lineup of guests, including Jan Carson, Henry MacDonald, 
Anne Smith, Malachi O'Doherty, Andrea Spencer, Helen Sharkey, Emma Thorpe, and many others. Today's sponsor, Property Insurance Center, specializes in commercial and residential property insurance and all types of business insurance. Originally established in 1976, this family insurance brokerage has served thousands of businesses and families just like you over the decades. To discover more or become a sponsor, click on the sponsorship link below this podcast. And now back to you, Jackie. So go, go back, go back to your book, your book, Two Souls, Henry. How mm-hmm. different are you from the main character, Robbie? Well, uh, I'm different in that I, I I didn't get sucked in to darker forces. Right? Mm-hmm. I resisted that. I think the anti the punk anti though was strong, you know. Yeah. To resist those resist those toxins. Um. So that's the difference. Uh, other, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of similarities too, but that's the key difference, really. You know? And I did get away, albeit I'm still here now, but I did get out. I did move away. I did have other experiences beyond, and I, I did sever ties with a number of people who were dragging me in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Robbie, did, Robbie didn't do that, you know. Okay. So you mentioned there's two things that popped up there, Henry, and what you said. The anecdote of uh, the punk punk movement, but you were also involved in a band. You mentioned to me, didn't you? Yeah. Well, when when the punk scene sort of petered out, I got more interested in other kinds of music, kind of mm-hmm. post punk sort of period. You know, period of Echo and the Bunny Man and all that, and mm-hmm. certain ratio, Gang Four. So yeah, with a couple of bands, our band was successful. One was the Flea Circus, and uh, you know, uh, we. Did a few gigs, we got a few decent reviews, and uh, but <clears throat> it didn't last because I, I had no, I had no interest in it. Plus, our lead guitarist, who was the genius of the band, really, he 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 was going off on a world tour. He got one of those bucket, you know, those bucket tickets you used to uh-huh. get, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. hundred and ninety nine quid. You can fly from LA <laughs> and then do a world trip. Yeah, and he just did that, and then I went. I sort of went. I went back to Berlin actually in eighty seven. So that's when we bro- we, we broke up, but. Um, we kind of, it was kind of, <clears throat> kind of, kind of political lyrics and, uh, but very funky. Uh, uh-huh. Joe, Joe's guitar hero was always Nile Rogers of Chic. Yeah. Joe's still in a band now called the Experimental Pop Band. They're based in Bristol. And Joe, okay. Joe has played it. He's played in, um, in festivals, even, even things like, uh, Glastonbury and that, in, on the minor stages, you know, but mm-hmm. they, they backed up Blur a few years ago. So we, we, we had a bit of a tradition, you know, but yeah, uh, it didn't last. Okay. And then the other thing, Henry, that you, you mentioned, uh, you're in Belfast at the moment because when we originally connected yes. earlier this year in 2020, at that stage, you I was were in Brighton. Exactly. So what's the story there? The story is I was over here in March on a sabbatical from The Guardian. Okay. Researching a book on my, well, it's half based on my great, great, my great grandfather mm-hmm. who fought at the Battle of the Somme and also fought and died in Ypres, the third Battle of Ypres. And I wanted, I just, the story of him put, put the hook into me. So I was researching family history Researching the history of the 36th Ulster Division, mm-hmm. the, the, the Ulster Volunteers, and uh, researching the complexity of the family. And when lockdown happened, and 
I had two years ago, I had a very serious double whammy of medical problems. I had a, a heart defect I knew nothing about flared up when I, when I in my fifties. Okay, and I, uh, I, I, uh, well, and then I nearly died, and then. When they were exploring what it was about, they found something in the blood. They went deeper, and then they did a camera test, and it turned out there was a tumor in my stomach, okay? Wow. Now, stomach, stomach cancer. Right? Mm. But, however, um, it was found early because of the heart attack. There's a paradox. There so is. Yeah. I had a year off. Yeah. Yeah, that is a paradox, but <laughs> maybe a benign one. And uh, I had a year off, and... I then went back to work in London. They asked me to come over to London, but I didn't want to live in London. I wanted to live in Brighton, somewhere in Brighton. But in lockdown, my, when it happened, my, all my physicians said to me, do not be going to London. Do not travel. And the Guardian was very good about it. I must say, oh, that's very, brilliant. very good. And yeah, that's they brilliant. agreed. So I, 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 now I'm working from home, you know, I must yeah. say they've been very, very good. Because you have another uh, medical condition, you're more vulnerable to COVID. Of course you, know? you are. So, yeah, of course you are. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'm not getting any younger either, you know. I'm not sure who is. <laughs> who well, is? That's it. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's, I'm, glad, I'm actually yeah. glad to hear that. I was thinking that you were still commuting until until something I saw. No, no. That's good. That's very good news. No, no, no. It, it's uh, no, it's for, for the interim period mm-hmm. and that's probably mm-hmm. for the whole year. Okay. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So in this uncertain times. Going back. Yeah. How does it feel to be in Belfast at this time? I'm, I mean, obviously you weren't planning to be there, but you'd been there for no quite a while now. Well, it's <laughs> the irony is, uh, I can't. Uh, two of my children have now gone. Uh, I, I missed them t- dreadfully when I was in England, but one of them is uh, emigrated to Australia at the end of January. Uh-huh, uh huh. Okay. For, for two years, to, uh, and the other one is now in Glasgow University. So I'm not going to see her for quite some time, and um, so, but it, it, it's good. I mean, you're surrounded by people you know, and you know, in these dark times, it's nice to have people to chat to, and you know, it's good. Okay, yeah. okay, that's good. Um, so going back then, Henry, to uh, the role of place, you know, both both in your creativity and your past. To what extent do you connect a life of, of violence to being? Brought up in an environment like Belfast. Oh, I mean, it's you, you. You experience it. You smell it. You see it. You. It, it, it infects everything: language, mannerisms, people's social behaviour. You know, you, you in the eighties. You and uh, certainly uh, turning teenager in the seventies and eighties. You mapped out strategies to make yourself safe when you were out for an evening, mm-hmm. right? You, you, you. For example, going to Queen's University, I would always, as my cousin did before me, the one who lives in Spain, mm-hmm. I would vary my route every day. I would go a different route to college every day, so that no one, could, no one who who was planning to, you know, shoot someone, would be able to build a pattern about you. All right. Yeah. You, 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 you avoided certain roads at times of night, and you went a circuitous route. You walked along the river, the side of railway tracks, rather than walk up the main road, mm-hmm. because you were safer doing that. So it had an impact on your whole social being, right? You you looked out every time. I mean, every time you saw a parked car that you didn't know who, who it belonged to, mm-hmm. you used to wonder, well, "What is that?" Or you know, 
um, why is this guy walking behind me fast, gathering pace? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that, you know. Uh, you, you had these kind of strategies for zigzagging your way around the city mm-hmm. to, you know, just to, just to lower the level of risk, you know. I mean, I remember pubs. It was, it was a pretty dark period in the early 90s when Ulster Royalist violence was ratcheting up in Belfast. And I remember a pub facing the newspaper where I then worked. Mm-hmm. He he used to put on minibuses for his punters coming from North Belfast. He would put a free provide a free minibus to ferry his customers back up to where they lived into their areas because you know he, he was trying to encourage them to come into the city centre, but you know feel safe getting home because right? there was a lot of attacks in, in that period. Yeah, I think so. The, 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 all the, it was always a part of your existence. You know? Not, not dominated it completely. I mean, or you know, but it was part of your existence. Yeah, I mean, I think I can imagine how in, entirely natural and integral it would be. So, when you consider the effects of that, one, <laughs> yeah, no, no, but just people still manage to. I mean, I always it's, it amazed me when I went to Beirut and Sarajevo, especially after the conflict. How people, even during the conflict, I suppose certainly in Beirut, how people were able to pull the shutters down and party. People mm-hmm. were, the resilience of people in these conflict zones to try and have a semblance of normality, you know, to have things to cling on to. And I and I recognised that, and there was a commonality I could see in those two cities to my own home, home base, right? Mm-hmm. I, I felt an instant connection with, with those, again, talking about sense of place, you know, I, mean, I, 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 I got the resilience of Beirutis, right? I got the resilience of the Bosnians. You know, they, 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 they had their own strategies to firstly survive, mm-hmm. to avoid being killed, to avoid being, to avoid being starved. Mm-hmm. And, but, and also to stay a bit sane, you know? And, uh, there were, there, there were incidents I remember from, actually from Beirut, um, which I recognised from home. Uh-huh. You understand? Yeah. Social, social things, not not political things. So just social things, you know. Uh, I there was a guy who the Syrians tried to close down West Beirut after Hafez Assad died. I was and I arrived in the airport that day when he he was dead. They were trying to have a state of mourning, and of course Lebanese weren't too happy about that. Mm. And I remember we went to this club and it was draped in black banners, you know, in mourning. Yeah. But there was a little back door. You went into the back door. It was near the Corniche. And, of course, inside everybody was partying, up going nuts, you know, <laughs> drinking and fornicating and whatnot. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and you know, maybe not, 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 not openly fornicating, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought, that, my God, this reminds me of places in Belfast that, we're like a little bit underground, yeah. You know, yeah. but but in, but we're operating at, at the worst t- times, and th- this is this is the human spirit. This is the ordinariness. This is the quest for ordinary pleasures in life. Yeah, breaking through, you know, or, or, yeah. or getting through, you know. Mm. So again, sense of place. Or there was that commonality, that common point. Mm. 
I suppose it's probably a quest for, I don't like to say such, in a way, such simplistic word, but a quest for light when there's a lot of darkness. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, I got that when I was there. Yeah, very much. So you obviously are a very well-respected uh, writer and reporter, Henry. Do you feel... Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Do you feel that, you know, your time growing up and obviously spending many, many other years in Belfast, do you feel that that has kind of served you in that way or not? I hope so. I think it naturally it has. It, it was a great training ground, a great place for 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 learning the trade and uh you know navigating between the lines between the various battle battle lines um yeah and i think it, it get i mean i think also family is important the family background history is important we're only really mining into that now you know i mean and the fact that we've got such a complex you know protestant catholic binary mm-hmm. going on there and uh I'm, I'm learning things about my, my relatives that I didn't know. Really? Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 and this is being very germane for the next book, for the next novel. Very. Do you want to talk a little bit? Very, about, very opposite. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, funny, you were talking up, you were talking about lockdown earlier and I was actually here researching stuff in the library in Belfast, but I was planning to go to Belgium mm-hmm. because my cousin had found my great grandfather's resting place. Okay. Where he was where his remains were buried in the, in Ypres in a place called Cemetery San Quentin. Mm-hmm. Not too far from uh the, the town of Ypres. Okay. And and I was planning to go there and I've seen it in virtual virtual reality. I've seen it not in virtual reality, but I've seen it on you know, Google Maps. Uh-huh. Google Street View, uh, a Google Cemetery View, I suppose you call it. And actually, the, his gravestone gave me the title. I, I, I'll be surprised if a publisher changes it. I hope they don't. But it, on on the gravestone, it says, "Thy will be done." Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, from the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, I think that has so many connotations, and it put the hook into me right away. And I thought, "This is it. This is the." This I must, this I must do, you know. Mm. Um, but I, when I was going to tour the battlefield and things like that, I will get back to it. I'll talk about a bit of sense of place. It's that corner of Belgium, Flanders, yeah, that where he's buried is somewhere that's drawing me. I need to be there when I do this book. I need to go there. I have to be there sometime soon, you know. But it, it's it's set not only in the. Uh, in, in the Great War, it's also flashes forward to the 21st century as great grandson. Stress, most definitely not me, <laughs> who works in the who, who works in the London Underground and is seeing what he thinks are ghosts. Mm-hmm. Okay, right? of soldiers of of World War One soldiers. He's actually a former soldier himself. Right, so there's a whole issue of uh, of trauma and mm-hmm. um, down through the years PTSD and. Uh, the legacy of war, and, and and in many ways, if you like, I mean, Two Souls, apart from the being, is about Catholic lads, really Belfast Catholic lads, mm-hmm. you know. Who, I mean, this novel's very much my Protestant side, right? Okay. The characters in it, apart from one character who's very pleasant, well, there's a there's a Muslim woman in in the 21st century as well. But she's non-practicing. 
And uh, but the two main characters, the the my great grandfather or the character based on my great grandfather and his great grandson, are both Protestants from the Shankill Road. Right. Okay, so which side, and I, which and side that, of the family, Henry, are we on? Just, just to. I would be on my mother's side. I'd be on my mother's mm-hmm. side of the family. Okay. So that being her, her, that would have been her grandfather. Right? Yeah. My mother's grandfather. So that's. I, I think that that's a culture and people that don't get much coverage in literature, apart from um, Frank McGuinness's groundbreaking play, mm-hmm. "Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Across the Somme," mm-hmm. marching towards the Somme. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, there's not very much in there. There's a lot of books about Irish, Southern Irish guys in the British Army in the Great War. Sebastian Barry had a masterful book on that subject. But the Ulster Protestants who fought in that war and the legacy of it, it has been touched on in a lot of history books. Philip, Philip Boer has a massive piece of a book about it, about the, about the, the road to the Somme. But in literature, it ha- they, they haven't. Mm-hmm. They've been invisible. Okay. But they played a massive part. And that's important too. So I'm also going on, just, and it, just in terms of sense of place, I'm hoping to go with a local historian from, from Belfast Shankill Road on a street tour he okay. does around the area of the Shankill Road in, in north central Belfast, right? And he, he, he goes street by street and tells you how many people were how many young men from those houses were didn't come back? Right. Right. Yeah. How many volunteered? Yeah. You know, it's kind of a, but it, it's it's a tour he does for tourists now. At the minute, obviously, it's frozen because of COVID. Of course. But I'm hoping to do an individual one with him before Christmas. You know, mm. as part of the research. So from from the back streets of the Lower Shankle to to the the to Flanders, you know, mm. it's going it's going to be an interesting field research. And does the book have a working title, Henry? Yes, thy will be done. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. The, the, ins- the, ins- the, ins- the inscription on his gravestone. Sure, yeah, yeah, okay. Flanders, have you been there before at all? I've been, yes, but never in that corner, that particular part of it. Okay. And uh, I, 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 you know, I, I'm just, I'm so looking forward to it. I'm also slightly apprehensive, you know, but I'm going to fail. Mm. But uh, I, I, it's just to be there, you know, uh, where, you, where you fit, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm also I want to try and mine my experience of the London Underground. I have a friend who works in the Underground, um, an old punk friend, actually, an old punk friend from the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, I'm hoping he will give me some information, some good colour mm-hmm. on the Underground. This is, the, the Underground plays an important part in it as well. In, in the novel. But would you have spent much time in, in, you know, in your pre-COVID days, would you have spent spent much time on, on the underground or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not every day, but, you know, if you're going out to job somewhere, you know, you're going down to West London. I actually had my uh, book launch last year, a London book launch in, in Hammersmith. So, yeah, I, I've read, I've rode the tubes many, many times, you know. But I just want to get an insider. So this guy has a very interesting job. He works in the tunnels. So, you know, I want him to talk to me about that. And I, I believe it could be very valuable. I've, I've watched a lot of documentaries about the underground and done a lot of research. And there's a very one called The Ghosts of the Underground. It's a very, very good story. And the novel actually opens up uh, in 21st century London. 
not on the song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm about 10,000 words. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, mm-hmm. what, why, why did you actually feel to draw on the London Underground when, when it's not an environment that you've been that actively involved in? Because of a story that my friend told me. Uh-huh. We were in Black, we were in Blackpool last summer at the annual punk festival rebellion, which sadly didn't happen this year. Yeah. 2019 rebellion. And I hadn't been to it in a year. Oh God, maybe a decade. And this guy, I hadn't seen him in 20, nearly 25 years. And we bumped into each other in the winter garden in Blackpool, another town in England I know very well. And we got to chatting and he told me what he did for a living. And some of the stories put the hook into me again. It, it just about the strange things people see. It's, I'm sure it's all trick of the light and trick of, trick of noise and all. But, and I just, I, the idea started to germinate, you know, what if the descendant of one of the group, group were Ulster men hmm. who's in London for a reason? He's in London because he's an exile, right? He's an exile. Okay. Um, starts to see apparitions, right? And, you know, and searches for answers. Uh-huh. That's the, you know. Yeah. So that's, that's, in a way, it's a metaphor. But, but, you know, being in the tunnels, being, I mean, like, the men were in tunnels yeah. in the Great War. Yeah. They were, they were in, they were under the earth, you know. So it's, it's all that mm. thrown in. Do you, do you have a, a particular fascination with ghosts, Henry? Uh, no, I don't. Would I? I think. I suppose I can't get away from them. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I don't. I, I'm not really fond of that many horror films. But uh, but I mean, I, I believe most of them are 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 just they're victims. They're you know in in, in a metaphorical sense. I'm not saying in a physical sense. Mm-hmm. But that they that you can use the ghost as, as a victim as as a trapped. So yes, yeah, 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 and that's the uh, that's the idea behind the haunted tunnels, which there are lots and lots of stories about. I mean, they're, they're very. I, I urge you to watch. There's a documentary if you put in "Coast of the London Underground." You'll get it. It's on YouTube. It's mm-hmm. superb. Yeah, no, I would definitely. So, I'm very eerie. I would definitely like yeah. to see that. Um, no, because yeah. the whole concepts of ghosts and being trapped souls also ties into uh, environment and place Henry in a sense because they tend, they mm-hmm. tend to gravitate, yeah. don't they, towards a place. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. It's 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 metaphorical. I like I like the ghost thing as a metaphor metaphorical. Mm. I mean I'm not the first to do that. I mean Pat Barker did it and her regeneration challenge you know, the the ghost road is the last one. Mm. But uh but I just wanted something a wee bit even more close to this century, you know, I wanted to have a flash forward yeah. element to this new book, you know. Yeah. Okay. So yep. just going back to Belfast, Henry, uh, if you were welcoming, we're obviously talking about ho- hopeful days in the not too distant future, uh, mm-hmm. when it's possible to travel, yeah. you know, safely again, if you were welcoming a visitor who was coming to Belfast for the first time, and they were asking mm-hmm. you about during the troubles versus twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two, you know, whenever now, anyway, more yeah. or less. How would you describe the most important yes. differences? 
the most important difference is the absence of fear. Uh-huh. The, the absence of worrying about when you go into a shopping center or a big department store, that there's going to be a bomb scare and that the bomb might be real or there might be an incendiary device. The absence of security. Okay, there's biosecurity now. <laughs> And we're 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 kind of used to security, yeah. but you know, having your handbags or your 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 coat searched by, you know, security guards, uh, the absence of um, troops on the streets, you know, the 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 way the city has demilitarized, mm-hmm. or you know, police stations are still fairly fortified; they have to be from rocket and bomb attack from. Dissidents, but I mean the, the threat isn't the word near what it was, mm. and there was always the the ubiquitous, overhanging noise of these kind of tiny tadpoles in the sky called helicopters, which um, which used to fly over Belfast constantly, morning, noon, and night. Mm. You don't see them much anymore. You know, there was always the helicopters up. You know, um, things like that, and also general nightlife. Oh, well, pre-COVID. Obviously, um, you know it was just safer. You didn't feel as if I'm going. I'm going to walk. I, I could. I could be abducted coming out of this nightclub, mm. bungled in the car and taken somewhere and shot or beaten or tortured. You know that's that's important <laughs> for people. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> I mean, street, streets and streets in Britain and Ireland are can be unsafe anyway. You know, but you had this added factor, mm. and uh, that was that was just extraordinary and awful. So you've touched. On uh, obviously Brighton, Hove, Berlin, um, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you've mentioned Flanders in, in obviously in connection with the book that you're working mm-hmm. on right now, and yeah, you also have one or two other important environments. One of them we have in common, Henry, which is Nurka in the south of Spain. Yeah, talk to me about yeah. how Nurka is affects you as a person in creative from a creative perspective. Well. I did. I mean, I, I had a place out there for quite a few years, '89 um, until at least twelve, thirteen years. Uh-huh. It's gone, but it's gone. But the desire to get back to Norgan never goes. Mm. I was there over uh, the New Year. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll go back again some stage when life gets back to some sort of normality. It's just a beautiful place. It's inspiring, and I, I remember having a blissful summer there. Um, when I worked on, on one of my non-fiction books, mm-hmm. I spent, I was co-writing my version of, of the UDA book and I spent a month there. Um, and uh, it was a really nice existence because you, you, you get up in the morning and you used to have a constitutional walk along Buriana Beach, mm-hmm. that beautiful stretch of sea, the little rail at, you know, up and down, having a nice cup of coffee at Tropy Sol and potter back to the house and, begin work so what what year and what year would this have been spend the mornings this would have been probably about the year 2002 2003 somewhere okay. like that okay. yeah yeah okay, maybe 2000 maybe 2004 mm-hmm. and that would have been the time when um that was, you know, when I was writing the book, and I, I got an enormous amount of work done because I only worked during the day I only worked like, you know, only worked in the morning time, you know, from about sort of 10 o'clock right through to about 2, mm-hmm. right? By then, my family were getting up and out. They wanted to go to the beach. So, <laughs> But you got an incredible amount done in that kind of window of three, four hours, yeah. right? And it 
it was very productive, you know, very, very productive. So I associate my productive writing life with that place. And then, of course, it was very inspiring too. It was, you know, Just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a lovely yeah. place and it, you know, uh, and it's, it's complete contrast to all the other places you mentioned. It's, a, it's different. It's abundance of color and sunshine and life. You know, I remember, well, well I remember this great day. I was my, my wife then took the kids out. Down to the beach early, I think, and I was going to join them at two o'clock or whatever. And I heard what I thought was the radio, and it was uh, flamenco music, which I love. <laughs> I love real, authentic flamenco, you know. And I was wondering who's got the radio turned on, who's listening to flamenco. But it wasn't. It was an electrician wiring up an alarm next door, who was just singing his. He obviously was a flamenco mm. singer as well, just singing, singing his great chanting voice yeah. passionate music yeah. but and I which I thought was on the radio it was him just <laughs> while he was doing fixing while he was wiring up the alarm for the neighbour yeah. you know I thought that was I just thought this is great <laughs> yeah no I've had a neighbour like that as well <laughs> here in Spain yeah. so yeah I know yeah. I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about so tell me something mm-hmm. Henry from all the environments that we've touched on you've made it clear that Nurka is like yeah. totally inspirational from a writing perspective Imagine if you'd been born, mm-hmm. imagine if you'd been born there. How do you think your life might be different? Well, I'd probably be able to swim better. <laughs> um, if if you're talking about the writing life, I mean, there's uh, there's so much history there steeped in it. I mean, it was Spanish or uh, the Romans were mm-hmm. there before they ruled. The then whoever the Spanish were then, you know, the, the, the Moorish influence is enormous. Um, the the whole legacy of history again for it from the the the, the, the reconquest the inquisition you know you got the civil war in the twenty twentieth century mm-hmm. you have so much that you, you you could mine into and then there's all that there's the caves there's all there, there's the mountains ab- ab- above Frigliana there's so much mystery and it, it's you. You could see yourself writing a treasure story there. I've often thought that, you know, there's a Roman treasure story, something, you know, (laughs) in, uh, you know, legionnaires who hid. Because I I remember the same thing happening in South Lebanon. There was always rumours that Napoleon's soldiers had had buried treasure that they left behind when they were fleeing Lebanon. Um, Stories like that would be influential, but also just the general, um, what's the word? I'm looking for general kind of the rhythm, the rhythm of the life mm-hmm. there. You know, people seem to live by the seasons. They live in a kind of benign, with benign rituals. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, even the, even the communists come out to watch the Easter parade when it courses through the, the narrow streets of the old town, you know, because it's, it's part of their lives. Um, you know, the people putting their plants, out on the the balconies to be blessed, yeah. and the holy procession goes by, and 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 their bed sheets too. All that I, I kind of like that upholding of tradition, but that that doesn't mean you're a conservative. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, just people's traditions. Uh, I think that would weigh heavily on anything you were doing creatively, mm-hmm. especially in writing. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, I think the rituals in a way, it's rituals. And then I think the location, because of course I I lived there myself, the location, the coastline there is absolutely Mm. spectacular. It's stunning, stunning. Yeah, yeah. But there's something also enduring about it. And, uh, you know, I've often thought when it being there, you know, going up high near the Parador is and looking down towards Brianna and thinking, you know, a, a Roman legionnaire as part of the occupying army probably looked down on that scene. Yeah. You know, apart from, if you took away all, all the fishing boats and the shops and the Mirandaros and, you know, it would look the same. Yeah, definitely. Really? You definitely. Know, you know, the, 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 ge- the geology would, yeah. And the shape of it. Anyway, I just, so there's a kind of a, kind of continuity through time. Hmm. It's, it's very odd. Yeah. No, I would agree. Listen, the last question, because, you know. Okay. <laughs> i got to get back to work. <laughs> uh, the last question, really, no Henry, problem. is from perspective of uh, creativity and place that we've obviously focused on a lot, a lot through the, the chat we've had. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel the creative yeah. pro- programs have uh <laughs> much of a chance to heal divisions like those that, that have been there traditionally in the north of Ireland and the places? I'll, 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 that, I'll answer that question in a different way. I, I spoke to a, a guy once, his name escapes me, but he was a theatre director in Sarajevo during the siege. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, what societies like Northern Ireland and Bosnia don't need are professional human rights champions and investigators and what they need is the artists to, to explore and confront these issues and why he said that was I think I think it's because artists or writers you know whether it's in the field of painting or filmmaking or uh, honest filmmaking mm-hmm. um, the novel the art of the novel poetry plays com- complexity is the name of the game mm-hmm. and empathy complexity and empathy I mean, uh, that, that is beyond political partisanship. Mm. And I think if you're going to explore the past, because the past is used as a weapon in the present, and cynical forces will use it as a weapon to beat the other side. Mm-hmm. And the legacy issue in Northern Ireland is absolutely toxic and poisonous, and, and it's going nowhere. It's only, it's only going to lead to recrimination mm-hmm. and bitterness and, and more division and yeah. more division. And richer lawyers, and richer lawyers, but it's you know refracting the past through art and culture is a better way to confront what happened. And I, I go back to Frank McGuinness. I mean, observe the Sons of Ulster marching towards the Somme it was the first time the Southern audience, the theatre goers of Dublin, Cork, Donegal, wherever, mm-hmm. saw a, an important part of Ulster Protestant history on stage. And I would argue that something like McGuinness's play did more to deepen understanding on the island about the other side and create a bit of empathy. And, you know, it doesn't mean you agree with them, but, you know, these are human beings. Here's what they went through. Mm. Um, Here are these complex individuals who are full of contradictions, you know, facing atrocity very soon, facing wipeout. And they're, they're doomed use. And, uh, that did more than a battery of professional conferences or do-gooding 
you know, get togethers for the cause of understanding, mutual understanding, if you like, right? Uh, uh, but it's, it was done not as a pre, pre programmatic way and certainly not done pro- for propaganda purposes. And that's what's vital. I don't think writers should start out on mission, on kind of the mission, the missionary of the, the salary of a missionary. I don't think they should do that, mm-hmm. but I still think they shouldn't be, they shouldn't run away from the big issues that overhang their, their society, but. I think it's best left to the organic, non-partisan, non-partisan as any human being can mm-hmm. be, and complex, rounded phenomena of art and culture rather than anything else. Yeah. Yep. And it, it certainly won't be perfect. It certainly won't be a perfect recreation of what happened. But all these things aggregate. Well, I think that's, uh, for me personally, Henry, that's a wonderful answer to end our interview today. Thank you so much for taking so much of your time. I know you're really busy. That's a pleasure. Um, That's a pleasure. Thank you. It's very kind of you to think of me again. That's (laughs) great. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Places and Faces podcast. If you would like to apply to be a guest or a sponsor, be sure to check out the links below the podcast. Until next time. From all of us here, take care, stay safe, and be creative.